Hey everybody, it's Ron from the Nerd Life Crisis Podcast Network, here to talk to you today about SpinWiz Comics. SpinWizComics.com is an indie comics discovery platform. It's designed to help comic book readers find new content, with over 60 publishers and over 400 different comic titles to choose from, and growing every week. Most of the content right now is free to read, but there are options available to purchase PDFs and support creators you read the most. And right now, as part of the promotion, IB Comics is offering the first four issues of Grace, free to read. And for all you music fans out there, the first 28 pages of Legba's Juke Joint Volume 1. You can read all of these for free at spinwizcomics.com. So if you're a content creator out there, check it out. It's a no-hassle platform whose core goal is to help with awareness, to essentially take your comic book and put it out there for new readers. It's as easy as uploading a couple of PDFs, toss them into a Dropbox or Google, and within a day, your stuff will be online and available for purchase or for new readers to check out. SpinWizComics.com. Check it out today. Welcome to Fix It in the Mix, the podcast about the real music business. I'm your host, Chris Thayer. Today, I am sitting down with drum master Derek Smith. I'm here in the Inland Blue Studios, and uh, we are recording remotely because times are what they are. So, Derek, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, let us into your world a little bit here. It is most a pleasure. All right, man. So, uh... I, I always like to uh, start the show off with the same question, and uh, basically the answers are really varied, uh, but I think it is a kind of a good place to start so people know um, sort of where everything started for you. So uh, the music business is the kind of thing where it um, sucks people in, and it's not necessarily something they choose. So how did you get started in the world of music? Got started in the world of music playing in the garage with my buddy Sean, uh, who had taken up the the guitar uh, and kind of weaseled me into playing along to some of his songs. Up to that point, I'd just been jamming in my room, you know, along to my favorite records and and learning to play the drums that way. Okay. Um, What made you want to do that? Uh, there's always some semblance of music in the family, uh, music being played all the time. And for one of the reason or another, that was something that resonated with me from throughout my entire childhood. Yeah. So you have, uh, you know, family that play instruments or are they just music fans? Nobody plays instruments, but my dad, like, for example, I, I, one of the fond memories I'll take of my father throughout my entire life is being five or six and riding in the car with him and going to one of his like uh, recreational basketball games that he played when he was a little bit younger. Right. But there was a uh, light my fire came on by the doors. And at the time Crazy. he was like, all right, is, is this going to be the, you know, full length studio version or is it going to be the, uh, the short AM radio edit? And it turned out to be the the full length studio version of the song being aired on the radio. And so he usually would drum along on my lap despite not playing an instrument. And uh, and so it was experiences like that, uh, listening to like the Pointer Sisters. I remember that one standing out quite a bit. But his enthusiasm for for music, and then my mom's as well. She was a piano player to some degree, not anything professionally, but 
um, there is always that semblance of enthusiasm for music, and uh, I think uh, I think whether it was passed on genetically, uh, kind of nurtured from a young age, it started to uh, click more with me as I got to be a bit older as well. So when did you get your your first drum set? I was it was my twelfth birthday. I'd gone away to Boy Scout camp, and when I came home, the drum set was set up in my room for That's me. That's crazy cool. Do you remember what kind of drum set it was? Uh, it was a sunlight drum set, like very entry level. But it was uh, a legit we, drum set. It wasn't it was like a, a legit, kid set. Uh, it was a legit drum set, you know, made out of like lawn or whatever, you know, Philippine maple, I think is whatever they call it now. But um, it was it was bought at a local music store at Styles Music. And uh, and so they certainly probably charged a bit more uh, just to keep themselves in business, which has worked as they're still in business but they, yeah it was uh it it's like a $300 drum kit that was probably $600 at the time and oh, uh and I actually even I don't know if I have any of of those shells still but uh, the first recording project I even was involved in, like on a professional level, uh, was using some of those drums That's that crazy. I kind of converted. And yeah, so it's it stuck with me for a long time. That's awesome, man. So you were talking about a, a friend of yours got you into playing um, and he was he was learning guitar and he suckered you into playing along with his stuff. Tell me more about that. It's That's like uh, a first band thing. Yeah, exactly. It was the first band. It 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 was like punk music, which is oh, simple course. enough to play along to, but it wasn't necessarily my desired, you know, style of music. But he, I remember the the back and forth that we'd have, and he's still one of my best friends. But you know, there was always this desire. I'd say, hey, can you learn like L.A. Woman on the door, or, you know, by the doors, so we could jam along to that. Not realizing that there's so much more instrumentation involved in that than just a single guitar, um, but always being frustrated that he wouldn't, he he was either unable or didn't have the desire to learn something like that. And here I was jamming along to uh, punk songs that you know probably a third grader could could uh, yeah, learn if they yeah. spend enough time. A lot of it yeah. is it's not about, um, especially with a lot of um, early punk and whatnot. It it wasn't really about skill it was more about just raw emotion um and and knowing what i know about you you know there's a high level of skill to what you do as a drummer i mean some of your heroes are some of the most revered drummers out there uh, without a doubt and and that being said i mean i i dig punk music and i I'd, I'd gotten into the dead kennedys and their level of musicianship was above and beyond i think what was normally out there but listening to minor threat and uh, I mean, any number of bands that were kind of around in the late '80s, early '90s was certainly something I uh, I went through my phase of that and played along to it. Um, but it was definitely trying to push myself as much as possible. And like you said, I was at that point I was getting into more classic rock and realizing that there was a lot of influence with jazz music and big band and and some of these other. Um, projects that involve the drums becoming more of a personality and more of a prominent instrument within the uh, the songs themselves. So we haven't talked at all about yet um, about what you do. Um, now, I met you playing with um, a guy named Nick Campbell, but mm -hmm. what you're doing now is you're, you're basically making a living as a musician. Um, and why don't you kind of tell us how that all started? You kind of transitioned from doing the original band thing 
Uh, yeah, so I, I currently play drums in the Led Zeppelin tribute band, Led Zeppelin again, which has been around since 1988, 89, right which around that time. Which is insane when you think about, you know, that was a time when tribute acts, nobody really, you know, thought about them as being the thing. And at this point, they're kind of dominating the, the club scene and the concert scene, the, the like city concerts and whatnot. They really are, and it, for better or worse, you know. And I, being involved in the scene, I'm I'm very fortunate to uh, to be playing music that I love, and and that part of things is genuine. But you know, certainly having grown up with the idea that I'd I'd be pursuing original music, there's a, a give and take to how much it's come at that expense um, for original artists and and. Uh, even for my own sense of creativity, but but that being said, yeah, there are a lot of people out there that have um, grown up on Led Zeppelin and The Doors and The Who and all these other bands that are are not necessarily touring or playing on a regular basis anymore. And and there's a whole world of people out there that still want to hear that music in a live setting. And so, it's been to the tribute band scenes benefit that uh, there are a lot of other very passionate, talented musicians that are also fans that are going out there trying to recreate that for people, too. So how did you even get started in the tribute thing? Uh, it was actually, you were in the band, uh, you know, and Nick Campbell in the Bluefields at the time. Nick and I had taken a trip to Peru. We were hanging out at whatever hostel we were staying at, and I, I was just like, man, I would just love to have a project where the music is written for us. I mean, the, the basically the only two tribute bands I'd ever be interested in playing in are, are a Led Zeppelin tribute band or a Doors tribute band. And so I went on Craigslist down in, I think we were in Lima at the time, and and typed into Craigslist uh, on Los Angeles, like Doors tribute band. And up popped this, uh, this listing for a group called Break On Through that was looking for a drummer at the time. Okay. So I shot him a message and said, hey, I'm not going to be back for another week or so, but if you're still looking for a drummer, I'd be more than happy to come in and audition. Um, and they wrote back and said, yeah, let's do that. So when I got home, I went out to Los Angeles um, and auditioned for him and got the job that day and then and started playing shows with them shortly afterwards. Oh, okay. What, what kind of gigs were you guys doing? It, it was very much a beginning uh entry level band uh not in terms of talent but just in terms of like hey they haven't Experience. been around for very long right. they the reason they were looking for a drummer in the first place is because their previous drummer had sort of jumped up to another tribute band oh. a doors tribute band called strange days who had management was playing bigger venues and getting around and so i was well, sort that's of pretty filling common in that right uh as i found out yeah it, it is yes um uh, because I would go on to join Strange Days uh, <laughs> probably about a year later as well when, when that drummer moved away. So um, it, it was a good experience to get to work with, uh, one, primarily older guys. I, I found that in the tribute band world, there certainly are, are younger players. I'm 36 myself and started playing this music around 20 nine i guess 28 29 okay um, so yeah it was primarily older musicians a little more established in life it, it also became clear like many or almost all musicians there was some amount of arrested development going on with <laughs> with all of them so you're you're balancing your your own personality with these you know mid 40 to 50 to you know sometimes 60 year olds 
that uh, are in whatever state they're in and and trying to make it work the best you can. And so we were playing places. There's a, a venue that I'm sure a lot of musicians might be familiar with called Paladinos. Yes. Um, that was in the Valley. And so we'd play there quite a bit. And in the hopes of, you know, becoming more established, trying to find management and uh, and just find other venues that we could play. But a lot of at the beginning, it was definitely it was playing Paladinos. It was having like a 30 to 45 minute slot uh, mixed in with five or six other bands and just trying to, to make the most of that that uh, that opportunity. Well, and, and I don't usually think of that aspect of the cover or the tribute band scene, but there is that there, you know, where if you're an up and comer and you aren't playing with Strange Days you're probably playing a 30 minute set in a night of four or five cover uh, tribute bands. And uh, that's exactly what it was. It was either that or it was playing for three hours in the corner of a bowling alley, for example, yes. you know, we had a few opportunities like that pop up. Um, and you know, with that pay was minimal. My dad is again, he's been a huge supporter from the very beginning and He's also very good with math. So when we were paid, you know, forty dollars at the end of the night for the entire band, or forty-three dollars and seventy-seven cents, <laughs> he'd be there dividing that out as evenly as possible amongst all of us, uh, so that we could at least take care of gas at the end of the night for for what well, we spent you know, getting with, there. With a four-piece band, I mean, that's uh, that's not as bad as it could be if you're playing in like a ska band or something. Uh, yeah, this is true. The Oingo Boingo <laughs> tribute, you know. Uh, yeah, and and that's exactly it, and we got to see some amount of that with the other bands too. That that were tremendously ambitious, um, without trying to factor in the reality of making a living doing it, and uh, and yeah, just how much how much energy and effort it takes to uh, keep a band together, especially if you've got more than three or four guys in it. Right. 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 Do you do you find that it's harder to keep that band together when there isn't um, like the original aspect to it? Like there is there the same buy in um, to something like that? Because I've always wondered uh, about that. Yeah, I think because it's, it's very always... much a mercenary type thing. Like you're out there playing the music and you love the music. But at the same time, if if there's not big money gigs, I mean, what keeps that going? Uh, certainly in, I, I can only speak from my experience, although it, it would be easy enough to, uh, kind of assume certain musicians, uh, you know, kind of perspective on it. I, the passion for the music always seems to prevail, cool. uh, despite, you know, whatever hurdles or obstacles exist. Uh, and so if anything, I've, I've been the one is I've taken on more responsibility in my life and like to having kids and, and getting married and all these things that, that, uh, I've always wanted to do. Um, that's allowed me to sort of draw finer lines in the sand as to what I'm willing to accept and what I'm not willing to accept. But oftentimes with musicians in general that want to pursue this as a career, like you're looking for any and all opportunities to, to be able to pay bills. So, um, yeah, I think I know there are a lot of guys out there that will play in multiple bands. Um, or probably, bands that are multiple bands. Yeah, exactly. There there are different iterations of things depending on, on you know, what opportunities exist. Um, 
as I've I've found as I've gotten further into the whole tribute band thing, there are cruise ships that hire tribute bands on a regular basis, and sometimes bands have to have three or four different versions of the band to be able to get guys on um, because of other obligations to other bands, and so it's it's all comes down to I think the the passion does prevail in a lot of those instances, but then practicality with you know, hey, if this gig only pays 250 bucks, uh, then it means I probably also, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay, you know, electricity and my mortgage or whatever's going on. So I've got to find a gig on Thursday, Friday, Sunday, and, you know, Wednesday. And I may not be as passionate about those particular, you know, bands, but they're opportunities and I like it well enough. And uh, well, I mean, at the end so of the I'm day, you're playing those. music and, and making a living. I mean, yeah. Yeah. As far as as far as like jobs go, I mean it's still a pretty good gig, you know. And you still get the, the days to a lot of times to to be with the family if it's a local gig. And that that's ultimately what I love about it at this point is um for me personally, I, again, I'm getting to play Led Zeppelin music and I've got a an almost 4-year-old and I have a 1-month-old and and I've been fortunate enough outside of, you know, the the few times Every, I don't know, every couple months we'll have to go out for a week or two um, and, you know, play Canada or go on a cruise ship or any number of things. And um, that's tough. But, yeah, ultimately I'm around home. I get to have my other job as a graphic designer, um, help supplement the income. Uh, and, and it's allowed my wife some freedom with her schedule to not feel obligated to to you know, be working as much as she was before and, and be able to focus on being a mom too. So it's, it's been really nice in that regard. Now you say you, this thing has taken you all over the place. Like, what are we talking? How, I mean, you definitely said Canada. Um, what are some of the other places that, that this uh, tribute band has taken you? With Led Zeppelin, I've played all throughout uh, South America. Wow. In fact, that actually, that, ended up happening as a, a byproduct of the Doors band, not so much break on through, but when I, I, I was invited when Strange Days had their drummer take off uh, and moved to New York, I was invited by them to, to uh, play uh, in that group. And so I, I ended up accepting that job because break on through was fizzling out. That took us down to South America with Strange Days um, through a connection that the guitar player Robert Carson had with the actual Doors, he had worked sound with Robbie Krieger and Ray Manzarek. Oh, wow! And and through that experience, had made some connections in South America while they toured down there. So, so that uh, that was the catalyst for going and playing. Uh, I cannot even keep track of all the countries we've played in at this point, but um, big and small, I think I've hit. Uh, most of them so strange days and then when i joined zepp again the same uh connection that robert had down there the promoter was interested in doing something with the led zeppelin band as well because as big as tribute bands are down in south america it's it's really expensive to bring somebody from the states down yeah and uh they felt they were in a place where they could take that chance so they kept they continued to do the doors band with strange days and then they brought led zepp again down and um but we're talking about, you know, we played, I think, 21 shows in 24, 25 days. Wow. You're, you're going to the airport right after the show's over. You're you're taking three or four connecting flights because no, there are no direct flights from some of these smaller 
cities into so you've got to go back through say rio or um and then get your your connecting flight so yeah it's it's a lot of work um but getting back to what you were saying that south america japan we played in russia we've played in uh let's see yeah all over canada the different provinces um we've gone and played in mexico uh we've feel like there are a few other ones i know before i joined the band uh that they had they've played in um let's see throughout europe they did some of the the sort of uh peacekeeping uh, at some of the military bases in oh, okay. like kosovo and uh yeah i mean this is wild so basically you've done all you over know, the place like world tours basically um just uh, yeah. in small chunks you know? Small chunks is yeah exactly, yep. Well, I mean, in a sense, you're you're kind of that uh, you're getting to live that rock star lifestyle, traveling all over the world. And sure, you're playing Led Zeppelin's music, but I mean, you're still doing it, you know. Um, no, and it's it's pretty cool. It's it's everything I could ask for, you know. Again, it. it comes along with all the success that the band has had and and the great management that we uh we have you know you find yourself frustrated over little small asinine things and you know you and i have talked about the the stresses or the frustrations involved in being in a band but but like when you strip that stuff away you know i'm on stage with with three other dudes that love playing the music that are all incredibly talented and uh, and are really are very easygoing and and yeah you sit back and you're like man I get to play some of my favorite music in the entire world uh, all over the world and and you know not being 21 or or younger where the idea of going out on the road for extended amounts of time sounds super appealing and is really fun it's like man I'm I'm 36 I got a family the idea that I get to go out for a week and and play somewhere in the world and then come home and sort of hibernate for a little while and be back with my family without having you know gone away for an extended amount of time is is as good as it gets well and i think that's that's kind of the um the modern model you know the idea of of bands going out and touring for six months at a time i mean i get the benefits of that but at the same time most artists that i talk to are doing a week or two and then they'll have some time back with the family because, you know, that kind of stuff is important. You know, it's not the 70s anymore where you take off and, you know, you sort of have a family. You know? No, and, and that's often the the it's not even a joke. It's it's something that's brought up on a semi regular basis that, I, you know, you interact with some of the people out in the, the crowd and you're often asked, you know, hey, you know, man, this is amazing. You know, I had such a good time. Like, why why don't you go play in like a, a like an original band that's out touring? And the honest truth is, if uh, I mean, there's there's little job security and all that stuff. You go out on a tour. I mean, if, if Taylor Swift, that's maybe a bad example. Like, no, like, yeah, I mean, great if, if Taylor Swift were She's making one money. of the most established artists yeah, in, in the entire world were to invite me to be her drummer, I I I would legitimately really question whether I take that opportunity because I know after that tour is over, as much as it may pay pretty well, that I'm going to be looking for a job again. Yeah, and uh, and that it probably would be an extended tour where you're going all over the world, you're gone for right. three or four months at at a time, and and that's just not something I'm interested in anymore, uh, being where I am. So with Zep again, 
you know, we work year round. We're, we're working nearly every weekend, if not every weekend and playing multiple shows, uh, every weekend. Um, but there's just, there's the opportunity to go home at the end of that after, you know, one or two days work. And, uh, and I, I love that. Now you talk about, um, Led Zeppelin and, and the doors being some of your favorite music. And I don't think people quite understand the extent to, you know, how you mean that. Um, and I learned this after <laughs> I, after I played in a band with you is like, you were literally sitting down and recording yourself playing Led Zeppelin songs note for note as much as you could just on video and then just posting it. Yeah, that's that's how I got the job in Zepp again. Isn't that crazy? And I, it's uh it, it became a crazy, a crazy obsession. And and I the the beginning of all that Yeah, like happened. how did that start? I lived not too far away from a, a place called Ontario Music. It was owned at the time by Todd Trent, who had been a Ludwig drums uh, rep and worked with all the the big names. Well, yeah, um, of course. John Bonham and you know uh, Alex Van Halen and all these guys. So he had this like museum set up in his his shop, and I walked in one day to find a Ludwig Green Sparkle. Uh, 70s kit early 70s kit that looked almost exactly like john bonham's and and that had always been my favorite drum kit i had set like watched uh there was a website called drummerworld.com where there was a video of a guy named mark romans playing john bonham's green sparkle kit and i had like watched that over and over and over as the internet and youtube started to become a bigger thing around like 2006 so I, any number of hours just obsessing over the sound of the kit and the kit itself. And so here I was in this music shop um, seeing a kit like every bit that I dreamed about for for a long, long time. And, uh, and it was like 1100 bucks, and I didn't have the money at the time, but it was just like, no, there's no way I can leave without getting this. So I, I put it on a credit card. Of course. And uh, like was totally irresponsible. But the point being... I, I had spent so much time obsessing over the sound in those kits that now that I had one, I, there was this desire to, like, I knew there were other people out there like me. And, and not that I had the ability to pull off Bonham um, or, or even knew the sound all that well, but, but it was in the desire that I just, I knew there were other people out there like me. So I started putting videos up on YouTube. And I also found in the process that if I was recording along to these original songs, I could hear how badly I sucked at pulling off certain parts. And, and it ended up being like the greatest teaching tool I had. Well, yeah, I imagine. Because, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd play along and go, OK, this part needs to tighten up. And ultimately what I'd end up uploading to YouTube was like the best version of a cover that I'd gotten, whether it was good times, bad times or. Well, how so many I... of these are we talking? How many of these songs did you record yourself playing along with? I mean, really only 10 to 12, probably. That's still a pretty um, huge amount to learn it, almost note for note. And, and it, was, it was a fun challenge, and, and it allowed me it, – it was one of those things that, you know, in life everybody's got something they want to do that they – like you get halfway or three-quarters of the way feeling like pretty comfortable over things, but you know at some point you're going to spend a little bit more time and really dial it in, whether it's a guitar solo that you've always – loved or admired or you know yeah drum part or bass or whatever and um and so this was this chance where i was i decided i was going to pursue music for a living you know nick hamill and the bluefields was starting to pick up steam but all the while I, I, it was like it was john bonham and it was carter beauford from dave matthews band that yes. were like the two biggest influences on me at that stage and and so i wanted to put as much of them 
into my own style as I possibly could, possibly could. And, and that meant just sitting down and, and Bonham just was always a little more accepting. Uh, so I, I started there and, and along the way I, I found that, um, you know, this is around 2009 and the recession had, had, was pretty well in full effect and people were selling off a lot of really nice equipment that they had. And I happened to have like a life insurance policy that my grandfather had started for me that I, I ended up selling and getting about $10,000 out of. So I, I, I got the green sparkle kit. I found that there was uh, like somebody was selling a, a, the Vista light kit that Bonham played oh, wow. uh, for like 1200 bucks, which was a, a crazy, um, not again, not, not cheap, but affordable. Well, yeah. And that I had a, a maple thermal gloss kit that I put together myself that was modeled after Bonham's. And so, and then I found the stainless steel kit that he also played. So all of a sudden I had all four drum kits um, that were very similar or exactly like what he played. And, and it just became this endeavor of like, Hey, I'm going to find, yeah, I'm going to pick a song out, something like Achilles last stand that is just scary as hell to me and sit down and learn it as as well as possible and i've got the internet that was already full of trolls uh you know holding me as accountable as possible then i knew i had to really try and get it as accurate as possible and and that's that's what i spent my time when nick campbell in the bluefields wasn't rehearsing it was going for uh these you know bonham songs so you've got all this stuff out there how did that turn into you're now suddenly playing with if not you know the top one of the top led zeppelin tributes uh a guy named jimmy sakurai ended up finding one of those videos at the time he had joined led zepp again i i that part's cool and that i i was familiar with jimmy and his work uh because i again when youtube came around i i was always curious and seeing if any bands were going to be coming through or Led Zeppelin tribute bands were going to be coming through San Francisco. And, and in that search, I found these videos of this Japanese cat with his, his bands in Japan playing era specific shows of Led Zeppelin. And, now, now uh, when you say era specific, you're talking about like they're duplicating the whole concert. Like as note for note as they possibly could <laughs> from the set list to the jams. That's to insane. The, yeah, it, it, the level of detail and and effort and energy they put into it was above and beyond anything else I'd seen. And, <laughs> so and I, I was obsessed with trying to find as much as I possibly could of him because I admired how. I mean, everything was sort of funneled through him. Jimmy was sort of the the front man of the group, and he was the one that was putting it together. But but still, he had three other guys behind him that were just as dedicated to. John Paul Jones and Robert Plant right, and right. Uh, John Bonham as he was. So it's, um, yeah, I really, I, I loved what he did. There was always this desire to hope that he would come to the United States and, and play shows because I would go out of my way to go see him. And then when I found out that he was joining Led Zepp again, it was, uh, I was like really, really interested in trying to, to be able to check out a show. The, the I'll be totally transparent and honest in that the the drummer Zepp again had at the time um, wasn't as on board with the live versions that Jimmy wanted to do. Right. And and I got really frustrated watching some of the videos I'd seen before I had a chance to actually watch them in person. Um, so I'm sitting there just, like just you know going crazy as Jimmy's laying down like note for note solos of you know say. Uh, Thank you from the 90, 1971 performance of like the BBC sessions. It's one of my favorite guitar solos ever, and he's just killing it. 
and but there weren't there weren't enough dynamics so we got together ultimately for a jam and it it worked really well they were going to be playing a, a show dedicated to like the 1972 performances in la that they released as how the west was one one that i was very familiar with so we without even saying much jimmy doesn't actually speak all that much english or he didn't at the time we got together um and just said hey let's just play this show from start to finish and and we did you know with minimal talking with min just you know the formalities of saying hi yeah. and meeting the other guys and and it felt great i mean there were no missteps there was no um second guessing anything it just kind of clicked in really well and and so a, a day or two later uh swan the singer of the group uh who's been in it the longest he's uh since about 93 i think um wow he called and was like hey man uh you know if if you're interested the drumming position's open and uh it's all yours so that's how i got the job was the youtube videos being up jimmy finding them me absolutely loving jimmy in fact i, I remember the moment I had a Facebook page to go along with the YouTube channel and up popped this like little, you know, you got a notification saying, Hey, Jimmy Sakurai, I just liked your page. And hey. I was like, Are you kidding me? Like, right, I, right. I, so I immediately started sending him a message saying, dude, I worship what you do and, and the effort you put into all this stuff, man. Like I'm so honored that you're, you just became a fan of the page. I just wanted to say hi. Like, again, I, 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 dig what you do man and he had sent a message like literally i i hit enter to send the message and then his message popped up like two seconds later because he was already in the process of sending the message saying oh i, I like your drum covers like maybe we could get together and play sometime and it just it all kind of came together in a really um it's, the, a, it's a nice story in terms the magic of, how, of the internet yeah exactly <laughs> you know here you took like two guys completely on different continents that somehow ended up playing together. That's that's yeah, pretty cool. It's you know to some degree it was his uh, not just his but his band seeing that hey if they're doing a 1970 show their drummer had the maple thermogloss kit and and uh, if they were doing a 1977 show he had the stainless steel kit and and so that that precedent was set. It was tough to think that if I was ever, I don't know if I even wanted to do a, a Zeppelin band at that stage or was ever expecting to do a Zeppelin band. But I, I to this day, Bonham sound, as it's recorded both live and in the studio, is, are some of my favorite drum sounds ever. So right. I, I wanted Very to get those iconic. drum kits, yeah, regardless of, of whether I was ever going to use them on a stage. But, um, it was because of his attention to detail and his band's attention to detail. And fortunately, I've gotten to meet all those guys that I've been watching in the videos since 2006. Um, since then, be because of, of um, him reaching out. And it's just been exciting. But th that was that was the precedent. And I figure there's no reason not to try and shoot for that myself. Um, if it's already been put out there by other guys, then that's what I need to try and live up to. So not to change gears here, but um, one of the things that I, I find most interesting is um, kind of like what what gigs resonate, uh, good or bad, with people. So I don't know if, if you have one in mind, but and it could be with any band that you've played with any time, uh, but do you have a favorite or a best gig that, that pops into your head? It doesn't have to be the absolute favorite, but one that definitely sticks out to you right now. No, certainly. I there there are a few in particular. Uh, as certainly you are involved in, and probably 
number one, or it's it's like there are two in, that stand out. The first one being getting to open for the Doobie Brothers, and that was with you. That's right. Uh, you know, with the Chris Thayer band and how th- I, that was the first really big gig in my life. Really? You know, there, there are some, like, cool moments along the way. The first show you ever really play, uh, you know, with any band. Um, I'd done some jam nights, uh, it's, but you know, that were exciting, that were all kind of like culminating or leading up to this experience of getting to play at the Fox Theater in Riverside and opening for the Doobie Brothers. And, you know, you show up and they're, all their equipment's already set up. And um, and you're the intruder in that stage, you know. Yeah, but, but there was such a welcoming feeling to the whole thing, too. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah. Like, it's really intimidating, but but everybody was very cool. Um they you know, were very you're... cool, and and a lot of times the the headliners are not. Um, oh, I mean, it, yeah, you're right. It's when you've been in the industry long enough. I'm I'm even kind of like this now, where I I do my best to be as nice as possible. But uh, like for example, if if we, you know, if we have to set up for a show eight hours in advance of the show. Like I generally, if I have the option to go home, like if we're playing in Anaheim and. You know, I'm I'm in the Inland Empire or something like that, and it's only 30 minutes away. Man, I set up my stuff, and I go home. I don't stick around to talk to the opening band. And it's not to try and be rude. It's just like you get you do it for so long, you get so much experience. Um, you, you have a tendency to uh, shut off in certain regards. Right, uh, or you forget what it's a, like to be that opening act. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's a good way of putting it. And and so that they were as nice as they were, that they were as accommodating as they were from the road crew, you know, again, ultimately leading up to <laughs> us getting to go out on stage with them for their encore and singing, listen to the music. Oh, my God. And, you know, Pat Simmons walking over, like, you know, kind of joking around with us, like, all you got to sing is, oh, 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 listen to the music, you know. It's, Which for me, um, I've, I've never admitted this, but I was not the biggest Doobie Brothers fan at that point. And I was mm-hmm. terrified I was going to have to sing a verse because I don't know those <laughs> songs that well. I mean, I know of the songs and I know the the hooks. Thank God they didn't put us in that position because I was like, oh, Mike has to know these songs because, you know, he was the bass player at that time. Oh, he was he Huge was fan. all over that. And I, I, I loved in this tiny part of it just because um, – my my wife or my fiance at the time and I were out in the crowd watching the show and it was just kind of like, hey you know it'd be cool to go watch the the last song from the side of the stage and so we went back but that was right at the point that that I think it was even being decided that we would go out there in the first place so I I came in as all of a sudden it's like Pat Simmons is is waving us on well here's the crazy like, part of this I don't know if I ever told you that uh-huh. me and Kevin and Mike went up to the balcony, which was largely empty. And okay. we just wanted to see what it looked like and sounded like from up there. And mm-hmm. the ushers kicked us out of the balcony <laughs> because we didn't have tickets to be up there. And it's, and I'm trying to explain, like, hey, we're just up here for a second. We were the band that was on stage like 20 minutes ago. Yeah. And they kicked us off stage. So I, <laughs> as a way of saying, hey, screw you, I decided, hey, well, let's go on to the stage and we'll stand in the wings and watch the show from there because we didn't have yeah. a seat. And then, you know, because we were there watching, I think that sort of, you know, kind of gave those guys that idea to have us come out and, and join in. 
Um, and it was because I remember there was some amount of apprehension, like, yeah. are you? I mean, maybe exactly like you're talking about that. There, are, wait, are you? Are they going to ask us to sing a verse? Are you going to have to sing a verse <laughs> right. here? Like, and and it was Mike in particular who was just like, yeah, let's go. Like he didn't hesitate for uh, a second oh. to walk out there, and and so all of a sudden they're playing, listen to the music, and. And we're, they've got a mic set up for us, or we're using one of the stage mics, Here's whatever it was. some tambourines and, and stuff. Yeah, and, and that was the coolest part. It was like, after we were done with our set, the one, you know, they have two drummers, and I, I'm going to feel so bad that I can't remember the dude's name. The, the drummer, one of the drummers came up to me and was asking about you know, some of the symbols I had used and, and was very nice and gave me a pair of sticks and all these things oh, to kind of cool. commemorate the night. And then while we were, we were singing with them, he, like, motioned me over... And, you know, took a tambourine off. But, yeah, they'd given us all kinds of percussive instruments and all these things to go along with, like, being up there. I don't even know if they had that mic on, man. I mean, we yeah, we might have been, been singing out McCarty. of key. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like they they made us it, – it was still to this day one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. And that it was so early into my career felt um, – you know, there are always any number of reasons you find to justify continuing on this path when there are any number of other practical reasons why you should probably stop and look for something a little more traditional. <laughs> right. And and that was definitely one of those things where it's like, man, if it's led to this so far, there are other things like when we started recording with Nick Kim on the Blue Fields, like Kiss was next door to us and then No Doubt. And it's like, hey, we're working this close in proximity to some of these like heavy hitters in the industry. And then that led to, yeah, opening for the Doobie Brothers. Um, and so that, that whole night in particular is, is, will forever be, and as long as I have a memory, one of the, the cherished things that exist there. Well, one of the funny uh, things about that whole experience was those guys don't use amps. Everything no. is, is uh, running through their in-ear monitors. So they yeah. didn't even have monitors on the stage. So we're out there no, trying I, to sing along to the song, and all we can really hear is the house mix, you know, sort there's of There's a house mix, and there's drums just bashing drums. away behind you. Yeah, and, and even then, I drums. think they had the, the glass shield or the drum shields up. Yes. Um, it was, it was yeah. so bizarre. And anybody in the audience would have no idea that we could not hear what was really happening aside yeah. from a little bit of a bounce back from, from the house mix. Exactly. Um, so funny, yeah. man. I'm, I'm again, totally glad we didn't have to actually sing any like solo parts or whatever, because <laughs> who knows what we would have sounded like without you know the actual sound in a monitor in front of us. Um, no, but it looked I, really heard, cool, you know. It did, yeah. And and I know uh, Chad Patrick, you know, our, our, your friend, and I've since gotten to know him very well. He yes. got some video of that. Um, but yeah, that pops up every once in a while in my Facebook it, feed. Yeah, you know? it's it's really neat, and especially because he's so enthusiastic. Yes. I, you know, and supportive that that you can hear him be like, oh man, he's they're having him come out on stage and sing. And then uh, yeah, at the during the middle of the song, when when one of the drummers had motioned me up to come grab a tambourine off his own drum kit because there weren't enough going around he's like oh you know he's he's having him get a, a piece of hardware off his kit like it's just so cool to see the actual performance and then mixed with chad's like very enthusiastic um commentary along with it and it's uh yeah that's definitely it, it makes me happy thinking about all that yeah man i you know I, I forget about those moments and then something will remind me i'm like oh wow we did do that um and i i think that happens with a lot of the because he plays so many shows that it, yeah. it tends to become a blur, um, but then something sparks a memory of something like real specific like that. Now we talked about one of your favorite gigs, 
have you had any of those nightmare gigs? Uh, like, what would be a worst scenario for you? Like, one that's happened. It's only happened a few times, and that's generally when it feels like work, or not even work. I mean, when music, when... It's like, you know, the, the traveling, the the relationship dynamics that, that, you know, bounce from time to time, that right. stuff can wear you out. But but when those moments when you're on stage um, actually playing the music are generally make up for all of that. And so there, there are only maybe two or three times where I've ever felt like not even playing the music is making up for some of the other stuff involved and, and how frustrating it can be. And, and that's generally... If, if um, you know, for Zeppelin and doing the Zepp again gig, if I don't feel like we're living up to the the legacy that that band laid out for us, again, it's like the, hey, the music's all there written for us. All we have to do is play the notes, and and it's not always that simple. You're trying to f- tap into some kind of spirit or some amount of like enthusiasm and energy that the audience doesn't always give you. Um, but sometimes they do give it to you, and you just feel like a fraud up there. Like we're just not clicking as a band. You're just not having a good performance. You're and just phoning it in, kind of. Yeah, and you, it's or you feel like the other person's phoning it in. You right, know? right, right. That's that. That is, you know, really you you learn as you get older. You can only hold yourself accountable, and um, you can hope the best with other everybody else. But yeah, I I found that. I mean, there's one when I was in Break On Through where we just we it was a small tiny little bar and we we weren't getting paid anything uh which you know ultimately shouldn't influence your enthusiasm for a show but there were only like five but it people can, there for sure it when when you're driving uh, at the time i was coaching baseball i was coaching high, high school baseball with my dad we'd had a night game and so we went and coached the game maybe the game didn't go well either and it was frustrating and then we had to drive way the hell out uh, you know, I can't remember where it was, but it was like another hour away. And, and you get there and there are like five people there and we were only scheduled to play for like 90 minutes. And, and, and we started late anyways. It was like one of those things where we were supposed to start at maybe 10 30 or 11 and we didn't start until midnight. Mm. And again, there's nobody there in the first place and 90 minutes all the you know there was like one enthusiastic person that was like hey can you play this can you play that yeah. and we did except that stretched into like three hours of music until the, the bar closed down and i just remember about halfway through we weren't playing well and again there was nobody there i was tired and and so it was one of those things where it just um that was like pulling teeth and and that, that was sort of you know i, I decided hey if Without especially making it worth our while financially to even take care of gas or, or, you know, at the time I was living with my parents, but I didn't want to be living with my parents forever. So it was one of those things where it's just like, I can't, I can't do gigs like this anymore. Um, like, not that I'm not willing to take chances or, or go out on a limb, but that was the first time music had ever felt like I'm just embarrassed with how we're playing and I'm, it's, I'm tired and I'm, I do not want to be here right now. And I'd never felt like that before playing music, despite, you know, certain performances not going well. It's like, well, we'll, we'll it'll be better next time. This was like, no, there's nothing that can save this gig. <laughs> well, uh, and here's the funny thing is as I'm listening to this story. This is your nightmare gig. And, you know, compared to some of the other people, I think you've had a, a pretty, uh, pretty easy road. 
You know, yeah, you haven't had like a singer drop acid and leave in the middle of a show, or you haven't had like things fall and you know take out your bass player, or you know it's like the stuff. Which you know, what's funny is stuff like that's happened. I I look on those. I can't necessarily recall anything specifically, but you know, equipment malfunction, and I I do get upset during those, especially in some of the South American runs we've done, where you know I shouldn't be as frustrated as I I am about you know, an equipment malfunction, if we're playing in, you know, uh, Manaus, Brazil, and the best equipment they can get their hands on because they're a tiny, poor, small little community is, is a drum kit that doesn't hold together very well. Um, so in the middle of a show, like it's sliding off the drum riser or something like that, because the, the, the bass drum spurs don't quite hook into the carpet they have. And so it's like that, that part of thing, stuff like that's happened. But it's uh, in, in some ways it's cathartic to have um, mishaps like that, just because you you have to overcome them and and get through them and and yeah, whether it's a singer being drunk or forgetting lyrics, I, like I get upset and I I try and hold other people accountable as much as possible, especially if, again if we're playing other people's music, like it's a it's it's not easy especially if you're a singer and you've got a lot of lyrics to remember and, and if there's a wide vocal range, but still it's like, Hey, you know, like, again, this, you, you took on this responsibility, like it is on you to do the best job you can. And I, I think always everybody's doing the best job they can, but sometimes it's better than others. Um, we were looking around for other guitar players and, and the dude was a nice guy. Um, but we brought in a, somebody from another Zeppelin band, and it just it felt like amateur hour. Like, I mean, I know he was nervous, uh, but we we had a show and we had a couple shows in Vegas, and and our manager was out there, and it just like the dude did not rise to the occasion at all, and his tone was was way off, and he, his plane was sloppy, and um, and I was just embarrassed to be up on stage on a. Uh, platform that big and and have it just fall apart as badly as it did well that is the danger of of being in this type of project if that shit doesn't sound and look like what it's supposed to it's really obvious you know because everybody knows what it's supposed to be it's not you know an original band that or even a cover band that is putting their spin on stuff and it's sort of loosely based like as a tribute you know, you have to adhere to what that's supposed to be. And if it's not, man, I can totally imagine how embarrassing that would have been. Yeah, you, you're Especially right. Especially when you're one of the more respected ones. And and that's part of it. There's certainly an element of, of like living up to a reputation that the band itself has established. You know, it's funny because one of the things I wrestle with is is the fact that the audience is there to have a good time. Like they're not there to rip you apart if you don't play the songs the way they're familiar with. Um, but th- so you really have to screw it up badly to like actually get the audience going against you. The thing that you have to compete with and, you know, 2020 and ultimately since i guess you know the early 2000s was you've got a whole legion of people out there with cell phones recording your performances now and putting them online and so you've got this world of people in in potentially new territories that you want to get into watching what you sound like based off of you know a show that you played two or three years ago or or wherever and if you're not again whether you've got a hundred people in the audience or a hundred thousand if you're not playing like your life depends on it, 
um, you've got just a legion of, of very critical people out there, some that yeah. want to tear you apart and then some that are, are just looking for the best out there and are going to hold you accountable if you're not that. And like you said, if it's supposed to sound a certain way and it doesn't, then now you're not just playing for you know, the audience in front of you, you're playing for the YouTube, you're playing for Vimeo, you're playing for Facebook, you're playing for everything. Yeah. And it's, you kind of have to keep that in mind at all times. And and that's why it became clear that this one particular guy was not the right fit, because even if he was just, I mean, the second night that we played with him, it was two shows. The second night was mildly better, but not nearly enough to feel like this was going to make up for how much we were losing in the process well, of, not uh, everybody is Derek smith recording versions of himself playing the songs note for note on youtube you know this is true but <laughs> he, he this guy could have done with with recording himself a little bit and listening and I, again, I know it's a, an asshole thing to say to like well, criticize but, somebody hey, like man, this on you're not coming into a, a beginning level project and i think that's the difference if if you can't play in the nfl with the nfl players why are you on the team, you know? So someone's got to get cut because they don't make the make the cut. Yeah, know? it's this is true and and so it, like I could never survive in Led Zeppelin again. I know that. I'm not going to try it. No, and and it's you know, I I guess in that with that statement being said, it's like, you know, how far would you go to make a living in music, you know, and and I, I get exactly what you're saying that. Um, well, I couldn't pull it off. There's no way. I I can't if, play all that stuff. Yeah, like you said, from a quality point of view, I think what he brings is uh, at that at least at that time when we were looking for something that could match what we were looking for, it did not exist, and and so yeah, like you know, trying to find other people that are up to your level, even even the guy we got, Anthony. Dude lives and breathes Zeppelin, but it took him a while to really develop his his stage persona because he was so nervous going from playing places like Paladino's to all of a sudden being in front of, you know, a couple well, thousand people. I would say that's at least 50% of it. Because if you're in yeah. a cover band or in an original band, you are you. But as soon mm-hmm. as you take on that persona in a tribute style uh, project, you have to have the complete package. And in a sense, it's almost, you know, half theater and half music. Yeah. And because you're playing, I didn't realize you are. I, I, uh, I, I found out that I actually really dig that part of things more than I realized because, because of the anonymity, it also gives me, I, yeah. I get to take the wig off at the end of the day and, or at the end of the show. And I become the drum tech again. Nobody has any clue who I am. That's um, and, and that's, I mean, it's fun to be able to interact with the audience and especially there are plenty of people that, that, you know, do still know you're the drummer regardless of whether you have the wig on. But I, for me personally, I didn't realize how empowering it was to become a version, you know, the, uh, to act out this idea of what John Bonham was. Yeah. Throw a wig on and all of a sudden I can be sort of like that animal, like yelling and screaming or not yelling and screaming, but just trying to be more animated than I would be if I were just playing as Derek Smith. And and it's that was more liberating than I ever expected it to be. Um, well, and I got a little bit of that with the Big Papa thing. Uh, uh-huh. And I, I definitely was playing a character, so I a hundred percent know what you're saying. You know. Yeah, you know, it's you you get to tap into this part, and I yeah exactly. I got to see that with you and Big Papa, where not that you aren't witty and clever, and I, I shouldn't. 
I don't even know exactly what I'm trying to say, but you know, you you're you're in this persona, and all of a sudden things come out of you that wouldn't come out if you were Chris Thayer. Um, and the stuff I sing about was definitely not autobiographical. Yeah. yeah, you know, somebody yells out a comment in the middle of in between songs, and you respond in character in in a sense that like is very funny and clever and ultimately witty because you're able to think on your feet in that sense and. You know, again, if you're Chris Thayer doing that, certainly Chris Thayer has a response, and then Big Papa has a, a similar yes. but different response, and it's it's kind of cool to all of a sudden get this other side of you that that's laying dormant somewhere, or you know that you've given roots to. So, not to switch gears, but I'm going to switch gears mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, do you remember the first song that you learned to play on drums? Like probably that you could actually play, like not the first groove or whatever, but. I want to say that thing you do. Wow, that pops into mind. I mean, that was like '96, I think, and uh, that's funny. I had gotten the drums around '95, so I I remember pl- putting that on quite a bit uh, and playing along to it. And I, because it's a pretty basic beat overall, I think I could play that one from start to finish. Right. No, that's funny. That would never have been my guess. So you know, switching gears a little bit here. Um, is there somebody that you're like, who would you say is the most underrated drummer out there? Most underrated drummer out there. Somebody that you think is phenomenal that people just don't get, you know? I, I, the first name that comes to mind, and I, this is going to expose my age, but also just because I think he needs to be revered by every drummer in the entire world or every musician, but uh, Joe Morello from the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Okay. Uh, I, I think he gets the respect that he deserves by anybody that knows about him, but I think that everybody should know about him. Yeah, um, see, I'm not super familiar, um, but I've, I, you know, I know a little, but I, I uh, okay. That would make yes. case I in point. Would, yeah, definitely. In my opinion, a good drummer demonstrates some amount of technical prowess mixed with a musical sensibility. Uh, it's what I love about Bonham. It's what I, Bonham. It's what I love about Carter Beaufort. It's what I again. My favorite drummers mix musicality and and personality with technical prowess. And Joe Morello was very much the embodiment of that. So I, if you're looking for creative ways to approach any kind of music, Joe Morello is a great foundation to, uh, to, to glean from. Now, on the flip side, is there somebody that you think is hugely overrated? I can personally think of about 10. Why don't you list your 10 and I'll, I'll comment on those. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think of guys like, oh, everyone you know, is in, enamored with Tommy Lee. And I'm like, eh. I mean, I've I'm, never listened to Motley Crue, so I have no idea. But I would say sh- sure. I'll I'll say the one the one that I'm, you know, I guess maybe is slightly controversial, especially given that he just died recently, and it, it's not Neil Peart, but Ginger Baker, um, maybe because of his own ego, always struck me as a little yeah. overblown. I love a lot of what he did in Cream. But that being said, it's like sunshine of, of your love is boring as hell to me because of the drum beat. It's just be, it makes it incredibly monotonous overall. Yeah, it doesn't and, really uh, go anywhere. It doesn't. And and if there if it were more dynamic, if it built up to be a bit more, then maybe it would it would be more exciting. But again, part of that's because he was so 
uh, seemingly full of himself that that you become more critical of his efforts. And uh, I certainly I've heard some of his drum solos that are mind blowing. And then I've heard plenty that are just mind numbing um, because they they go nowhere. And whether that's because he was on drugs or whatever, um, he could be very musical. But I don't think he was as technically proficient as uh, he thought he was. And and then his compositional skills, again, were sometimes really really creative but overall i think yeah if you were to balance him out on a, a spreadsheet he he missed more than he hit on on some of that stuff right right and i think we're living in a very different uh reality because we've had a neil pert and we have carter Beauford and you know some of these guys that have completely changed the game you know exactly you're you're right like to take what was already there and then build off of that in um you know to evolve to have have the the instrument evolve like we know what's what's come afterwards and uh certainly you know ginger baker is a big personality in the world of drumming but but i think other drummers have taken it and moved it beyond what he contributed and and made it better since then so we are yeah. getting to the end of this here um yep. you you know i i do have one last thing i want to touch on um you've toured all over the world at this point is mm-hmm. there something that you would still like to accomplish musically? Because you've done more than you know most people have done with the music. Uh, what's left for you? What would you still like to do? I. It's a good. <laughs> um. So I, it it gets back to. I'll try and make it concise. I I had the you had asked about like some of the highlight gigs and opening for the doobie brothers was one of them i got to jam with robbie krieger of the doors uh while i was in strange days and and get to play uh that's phenomenal some of those so building off of that the only other experience i would love to have based on like really musically would be to um to get to meet like jimmy page or john paul jones even robert plant would be cool I, i i have nothing but respect for robert plant but from a musical point of view to get to, to meet Jimmy Page, who who has come to a Led Zeppelin or Led Zeppelin again show oh. uh, before I was in the band uh-huh. um, and is aware of the group and, and even has hired the group before to play some of his charity events. That's funny. Um, you know, this was all back in the early 2000s. And so it would be really cool if one day he was just kind of like, oh, I'm in Los Angeles. I'll pop into a Led Zeppelin again show because they're not too far away. Like, it would be very, very cool to have the experience of, of just getting to to shake his hand and thank him for everything he contributed to music and i mean at this point uh, he's made your your music career at least currently possible in some yeah it's everything is funneled through him and john paul jones and robert plant and john bonham so it's it is uh without a doubt um yeah yeah that, that experience would be amazing same for john paul jones uh i would love you know, again, at this point, it gets back to doing more original music as well. It's something you and I have talked about and that I've, I feel more confident based on the hundreds of shows we play every year, you know, in my playing ability to keep time and take chances with stuff um, and, and actually execute them semi-properly. So it'd be nice to take that all, the confidence I've built over the last so many years and apply that to original music, whether anybody were to actually hear that again or not. It would just be nice to uh, to apply that to yeah. something that's a little more relevant to my own personal life at this. Well, I mean, you got nothing but time at this point, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it is about time to put a pin in this episode. This has been another episode of Fix It in the Mix. 
Thanks again to my good friend Derek Smith for letting me invade his world for an hour or so here. Uh, Boom shakalaka. Yep. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Facebook. Go subscribe wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. And uh, by all means, tell a friend. Share it. Let people know. Fix It in the Mix is recorded at Inland Blue Studios. Remember to subscribe to Fix It in the Mix on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by SpinWiz Comics. Please go and visit spinwizcomics.com.